Here we go. West Hills Friends is a Quaker meeting in Portland, Oregon. You can find more information about our community at westhillsfriends.org. As a Quaker community, we encourage everyone to share from their hearts, especially as it pertains to God's leading in their lives. These words are shared into a community that values the opportunity to respond and dialogue about what is said. The responses and dialogue are not included in this recording. The views expressed in this content are solely those of the original contributors. And do not necessarily speak for the entire West Hills Friends community. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day. Good morning. One of my uh, routines each Sunday morning is to walk from my home, uh, not to the nearest coffee shop, to the best one, and uh, to buy what they call a Sunday scone because they only have these homemade scones on Sundays. The rest of the week they have donuts, so I walk on other days as well, but I only get Sunday scones on Sundays to get a good cup of coffee. And then if I've planned my morning, my Sunday morning well enough, about 45 minutes later, uh, a friend shows up and, or two friends, and we drive over to Donutland in Tualatin. <laughs> and I have um, two donuts. <laughs> because you can't just get one. I don't go to Donutland every day because it's a little bit far to walk. And then we drive uh, to church. And sometimes after church, we stop somewhere for food as well. Food is, is good. And my favorite food is bread. And so I have a story that I brought um, that, that deals a little bit with bread. Actually, I have several stories and two scriptures that deal with bread. Bread is very important to me. Uh, and um, I think that bread also, uh, the way that it shows up or has shown up in my life and the way that it shows up in scripture is often a metaphor not only for the gift of being human, um, what it is that we create for one another and what it is that sustains us. Uh, it also shows up as a metaphor for our economic systems, how we interrelate, interact, and care for one another, provide for one another. And it also shows up as a metaphor for God's presence with us. Uh, manna in the desert, um, feeding of the 5,000, and so I love that Sundays for me are spent eating a little bit more bread than I eat during the rest of the week, uh, although not much more. I eat a lot of bread every day. Um, and I wanted to talk a little bit about bread this morning. And I want to start with a scripture from Exodus. It's just a verse, and you don't need to look this up because the verse is going to be taken out of context and is not going to make any sense whatever. It's from Exodus 25:30, and the verse is, put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. I'll read that again. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. An administrator at a school for the children of Jewish families had been approached by one of the teachers that she was responsible for supervising, and that teacher was concerned because some of her very young students, I believe first and second grade age, six, seven, eight-year-olds, had wondered how they might know if God actually exists. And the teacher had not been able to come up with a satisfactory answer for the children. In fact, every answer that the teacher provided or suggested, the children pushed back with another, well, what about this? Or why not this? And the teacher, 
at this religious school felt the heavy burden of being responsible, not just for the education of the children that had been entrusted to her care, but also for their spiritual formation. And so she'd come to her supervisor asking, what do I do? She was afraid, she was concerned, she was anxious, and she was sure that she'd somehow messed up in a way that was gonna cause problems for the school and long-term for these children and their families. The administrator um, had an idea that a story might help. And so she visited the classroom, uh, this particular classroom, and she read this verse, put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. And then she told the children a story, which I'm gonna paraphrase because I couldn't find it in print, and it's one that I've only heard her tell aloud, and it was years ago. So um, this is my own version of the story that she told the children. She asked them to envision a synagogue on a Sabbath day, and an older gentleman, a baker, who had fallen asleep during the reading of Torah because it wasn't that interesting, and he was tired from the week. And as the story from Torah was being read, he happened to somehow come awake and hear just this verse. Put the bread of the presence on this table to be before me at all times. And it dawned on him that because he was a baker, this was something he could do. So he went home and he made some bread and he brought it back to the synagogue, which was empty at this point. And feeling a little bit silly, carrying his armload of bread into the synagogue, not knowing what he was supposed to do with it, he prayed simply aloud that God would accept the gift. And then looking around for a place to put it, he found the storage area up at the front of the synagogue where the scrolls were kept and he tucked the bread inside. Later that same day, probably late into the evening, um, the janitor for the synagogue came. I, and I don't know the details, I cannot remember them from the story, but he wasn't sure how he was gonna feed his family. I don't remember if there were medical concerns, and I'm sure that the story was simple because she was sharing the story with six, seven, and eight-year-olds. Um, but he prayed, he prayed aloud that God might simply give him bread. And then, as he was opening the storage area to sweep out the spot where the scrolls were stored, there was bread, the answer to his prayer. And so thanking God, he took the bread, and after his work was completed, he went home. That next Sabbath, the baker did not fall asleep because he was waiting for the time at which the scroll storage area would be opened and the scroll brought out and the Torah read. And sure enough, it was opened and the bread was gone. It was a miracle. And it was a miracle that encouraged him. He was gonna do this again. And so this pattern continued of the baker baking bread and bringing it and the janitor taking bread and thanking God for it. And at some point along the way, the rabbi, um, I don't know for what reason, ended up in the synagogue late at, late at night. Uh, and because of um, the time that he had spent there, he observed the full loop, the full circle of exchange, the baker showing up, praying aloud that God would accept his gift and leaving the bread, the janitor showing up, 
praying that God would once again miraculously provide for his family and taking the bread. The administrator turned to the children and asked them, what do you think? Should the rabbi tell them it's really not God? It's a trick question. And the administrator was wise enough to know that the children would resist the simple binary of this question as they did, as all children do. They wanted to know, but wait, what if it is God? What this administrator was trying to help the children to understand, and I think the teacher as well, and maybe even herself in telling this story, is that we tend to think of God as other, as separate, as distant. And although that may be true, God is also present and with us and through us. That when we show up for one another, we are not just reflecting the very presence of Christ, we also bring God with us. When we receive from another, we not only accept the gift that God has given them to give to us, we accept that of God in them. And the children saw that. What if this is one of the ways God works? What if this is God at work? What if this is God in us? Robert Nelson uh, writes that every economic system requires some form of religious legitimation. And we could say that that's what's happening in the story, that the children are viewing this economic transaction, bread from baker and bread then to uh, the janitor, um, bread from the one who has, bread to the one who has need. There is an economic transaction and because it's circled in prayer, contextualized in prayer, and experienced as both gift and miracle, it works. Robert Nelson says, every economic system requires some form of religious legitimation. Marcella Maria Althaus-Reed, a Quaker theologian, puts it a slightly different way. She says, every economic system is also a religious system. The ways in which we encounter one another, the ways in which we exchange with one another, the ways in which we both provide for others and let others provide for us, that this is our religion. So the question that I'd like for us to consider this morning and, and maybe beyond this morning is what kind of an economy are we building together? What kind of an economy are we taking part in together? What kind of an economy are we legitimating to each other and to the world? We know that Jesus turned over tables. We sometimes remember that those were tables of money changers. Jesus was not saying that economic systems are bad, but he was disrupting an economic system that in that form and for that people was harmful. Jesus suggested a different kind of economic system, one that we see reflected uh, in Mark, I believe, chapter 7, and also in Matthew chapter 14. 
And I want to read that story. We'll come back to this story because I have some personal stories I'm going to share as well that I think help to illustrate what Jesus might be doing here. It's from Matthew chapter 14, verses 13 through 21, if you want to look that up. Again, Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 13. Jesus had been teaching. There were a lot of people there, at least 5,000, according to the text. And Jesus took compassion on the crowd. It says that he healed their sick. And then in verse 15, as evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. There's an economic question there that has something to do with scarcity. They're hungry. Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You, give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said, and he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about 5,000 men besides women and children. These five loaves, when I was a child, were explained to be by my Sunday school teacher to be something different from what we think of as that large one or two pound loaf that you would buy at a grocery store or make in your own kitchen. These were described as something simpler, like little barley loaves, like dinner rolls. The teacher who taught that to me did not have any formal theological education, so I don't know if she was saying that in order to make the miracle seem that much greater, or if she was saying that because she had some actual experience with loaves from Jesus' time period in the Middle East, and I will probably never know. <laughs> she was very old. <laughs> what I do know is that no matter how large the loaf, with some limits, that only five loaves and two fish, now I could actually understand the fish part because I wouldn't need any fish. Just give me the bread, please. The fish, I'm sure, were totally left over at the end. Who eats fish? <laughs> Lots of people do. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm trying to understand. But everybody, everybody ate, and it wasn't like a pretend eat, oh, I'll just have a little crumb, thank you and were satisfied, which suggests to me that some people might have been full, some people might not have needed as much as others or wanted. And the disciples picked up a little bit more than the five loaves and two fish that they'd started with. They picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. This is the kind of story that proposes a problem and uh, because I have a Western mindset and have been raised in America to think in binaries and logically and to solve problems because that's what we do, we fix things. I want an answer to this story. And the reality is that this story is a piece of literature. It is not necessarily a journalistic reflection on a particular event, although it could be. Because it's a story, it probably has more than one interpretation. And the question is, do the interpretations that we use 
have value? Are they valid? Do they work? And so one of the ways that I've reflected on this story is by thinking about times in my own life that have illustrated what might be happening, what this economy might look like in the world in which I live in today. And there are two that come to mind for me that um, consider what happens in a community based on the economy or religion that that community has. The first has to do with a teaching experience. My sister and I both taught in the West Ada School District, which is in Southwest Idaho. Uh, she was teaching, my sister was teaching at Lake Hazel Middle School. I was teaching at Lowell Scott Middle School. Each of these schools had about 1,300 students. Lake Hazel was actually just below 1250 and Lowell Scott was just above 1250. They were very large middle schools, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade. Because of the way that funding works in the West Ada School District, the largest school district in Idaho, they at the time were using what they called a local school's autonomy approach. Each school was given a lump sum of certain kinds of financial categories that they could then determine at the local level how to spend, what to do with. There were guidelines that they had to live within, but they were given as much autonomy as the district could afford because it was a much more efficient way of the district overseeing uh, the budgets for those schools. So my sister and I worked at schools that for all intents and purposes had identical budgets for classroom supplies. That budget for classroom supplies came out to somewhere between $50 and $100 per educator. Not very much money, uh, but that money is renewed annually and there were some extra monies that were provided for school-wide supplies like copy paper or copy machines. The interesting thing was that my school was considered a wealthy school resource-wise and my sister's school was considered a poor school resource-wise. We were serving the same demographic. Uh, we were serving students who came from uh, relatively wealthy suburban neighborhoods, gated communities, but Lake Hazel never had enough resources and Lowell Scott always had too many. And so my sister and I took some time talking about the different ways that our school supplies were managed. At Lake Hazel, each teacher was given a classroom budget. So they took the district model and they applied it on a micro level to each classroom. So my sister was given a budget for her share of the school supply money that came to the school and she could spend it wherever she wanted on whatever she needed. She could go to Lowe's and buy whatever she might buy at Lowe's to use for her classroom, or she could go to Staples, or she could go to Fred Meyer, or she could not go anywhere, and the money would just revert back to the school at the end of the school year. At Lowell Scott, I was not given any money for school supplies. Our bookkeeper, who worked in the front office and who had been at the school for 30 years, made massive orders at the end of each summer, just prior to the new school year starting. And all of the supplies that she thought might be what we needed went into a large storage room that was left unlocked during the school day, but that was locked uh, during the evening. So it was open from about 7.30 a.m. to 5 p.m. each day. What happened at my sister's school is that, uh, especially if you're a first year teacher, you don't have enough money to buy everything that you need. And so you buy as much as you can of whatever supplies are most necessary. 
and then you hold on to what's left over, thinking that you will slowly add to that over time, that you'll build up the collection of what you need in your classroom. Where, at my school, I walked into the supply room and I took what I needed for the day, or for the week, and then the next morning I did the same, and the morning after that, and there was always more. There was so much. I walked in looking for dry erase markers, and I thought that I was just gonna take one dry erase marker, but they came in packages of nine, I think, or 12, nine or 12, and none of the packages were opened. So I just went ahead and took a package and thought, well, I'll just work through this over the next, I don't know, 10 years. <laughs> I didn't use my whiteboard very much because I had a projector in my classroom. Um, my sister, on the other hand, I didn't have whiteboard markers for her classroom because she'd run out of money. What had also happened in my sister's school that was interesting to me was the way that teachers interacted was shaped by the resources that they had. If my sister ran out of supplies and asked another teacher for help, she was viewed as a competitor, as the enemy. Um, people hoarded supplies because nobody had enough. Where in my school, if I went next door to the art room teacher and asked for a whiteboard marker, she would give me two or three packages because she took way more than I did and she had a lot more sitting in her desk than I did. I lived in a school where plenty was the rule. There was always enough. And some people might say that we were wasteful, that we had way more supplies than we would ever use but we spent no more money than my sister's community. I tested this, I tested this at Twin Rocks. I call it the parable of the cinnamon roll. Because <laughs> I wondered, like an economic system or a religious system that rules the way that we interact with one another or that shapes the way that we view one another because my sister worked in a school where there was suspicion between neighbors and there were hard feelings between supervisors and teachers. It affected every aspect of their relationships, not just with each other, but also in the ways that they treated the children in their classroom who did not respect the whiteboard markers. Where I lived in a community where freedom and joy and creativity were not necessarily the rule, but had been unleashed by the kind of economy that we practiced or religion. The parable of the cinnamon roll uh, is based on the fact that at Twin Rocks on a cinnamon roll morning, which might be a Wednesday or a Thursday of a week at camp, there's this weird thing that they do where they make the same number of cinnamon rolls as there are campers. There's an exception, church retreats, they just make two big trays and set them out, sometimes three. But for youth camps, they provide one cinnamon roll for one person. So if there are 300 people at camp, then there are 300 cinnamon rolls. If there are eight people sitting at a table, there are eight cinnamon rolls provided for that table. This is a problem if you're someone like me who wants to eat 14 cinnamon rolls. And there are ways to get more cinnamon rolls. I could steal them from other people. And I know that short term that that's an economy that might work for me as an individual, but long term it creates some relational barriers. <laughs> Maybe you can imagine. <laughs> I can beg for cinnamon rolls. 
And short term, that might be very entertaining to middle school children in particular. <laughs> They're very entertained by this, actually. Um, long term, that also creates some relational difficulties, different ones from if I steal. I can invite all of the children who are intolerant to gluten or to dairy to sit at my table. <laughs> and short term, this is viewed as honoring um, by the children who've been invited to sit with Eric. Long term though, for some of them at least, it can lead to feelings of having been taken advantage of. And it also sends a message to the larger community that isn't necessarily helpful. I think that you can see how this works, that the economy that we live in can govern the kinds of choices that we make and those choices have relational effects that also color the way that we experience God's presence. If I am experiencing God through you, then the way that you treat me says something to me about who God is. The way that you interact with me says something about how God is. Our transactions don't necessarily, actually probably not at all, control God, but they really do affect the way that we experience God. And so our, our transactions matter. The way that we use our money, the who that we choose to give to, how we choose to help, how we choose to communicate our own needs or desires, how we act on those needs. All of these choices are economic choices with religious implications and powerful, powerful relational implications. It turns out that the parable of the cinnamon roll is that if I want to live in a community where I can have as many cinnamon rolls as I want, then I have to be willing to be the person who initiates the gift. I have to value others first. I have to risk giving away without any promise of reward or return. I have to be willing to open up my own hands and to offer the entire plate of bacon to someone who probably doesn't deserve it. Even this is not a transaction. One of the mistakes that the students who've sat with me in past years have made is this idea that if I take a plate of bacon to another table, I can just trade straight across for a cinnamon roll. It's a simpler transaction than stealing and then having to fight off and accidentally smushing the cinnamon roll that you got away with. Um, it's also a little bit more above board. It's honest. I'll give you this, you give me that. Uh, the problem occurs if people don't think it's an equal trade or if people think you're being taken advantage of or if people are afraid of being perceived as giving in um, to the cinnamon roll wanderer, uh, which is a word I just came up with, name I just came up with. Um, instead, the work of thinking about my religion is also the work of thinking about my economy. How am I unlocking generosity? How am I unlocking in myself humility and vulnerability and integrity and honesty and presence and compassion. Because it turns out that in a room of 300 students with 300 cinnamon rolls, not every student wants a cinnamon roll. It also turns out that if students know that you love cinnamon rolls, sometimes you don't have to say a word, they just bring them to you. 
which can create another kind of barrier or burden. Everybody's bringing me cinnamon rolls, but I know I'm not the only person in the room who wants more cinnamon rolls. So am I also then returning the generosity? Am I able to see those who have an equal or greater need than myself? And am I able to give away even though I really want to take this gift that's been given to me? And the parable's unfinished. Every year we've run different social experiments, uh, even to the point of me eating cinnamon rolls out of garbage cans some years to demonstrate that nothing is beneath me. (laughs) And also, why do you throw that away? I don't care that it has a little bit of ketchup on it. And so I don't know what exactly is happening in this story with Jesus and the feeding of the 5,000. There is a miracle here. And the miracle might be that God made more bread appear because people needed it. God's been known to do that. The miracle might be that God touched people's hearts and that those same hearts that are recorded in the Old Testament as hoarding manna, even though they knew it was going to turn maggoty, those same hearts here are releasing And maybe there are a whole bunch of hidden loaves that came out of hiding and were passed around freely. It may be that the miracle is something else entirely that I'm not yet smart enough to see in the story. But what I can see is that Jesus didn't just disrupt the economy that he was born to by overthrowing or overturning tables. Jesus also introduced some new ways for us to think about what it means to see one another, to care about one another, and to interact with each other. And I think that that's God's challenge for us. What is the economy that we are living out? What is the religion that other people experience every time that they interact with us? God, I ask that you would continue to work on our hearts that you would help us to be present to one another just as you are present for us, with us, and in us. And God, I thank you so much for your loving patience that waits for us together to figure out exactly what it is that you're calling us to and how to get there. Amen.